2: Oversharing is a podcast for entertainment purposes only. It is not a medical podcast and does not constitute medical or psychological advice. Always seek the advice of your physician or a mental health professional. Hello, and welcome back to Oversharing. I'm Dragana Abraham.
1: And I'm Dr. Naomi Bernstein. And today
2: we have a very special guest to go over an email. About something that we've been talking about for a few weeks, or at least I've been talking about and complaining about, which is sleep. And we have a sleep expert here with us, Dr. Wendy Troxell, to help us answer a question and just talk about the importance of sleep for your mental health. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure that is near and dear to my heart, and I'm happy
0: to talk to you about it
1: we are so lucky to have you. I feel like my whole life I've wanted to be in front of a sleep expert and it's never happened
0: until now. <laughs> You've been so, waiting for this moment. <laughs> yes, waiting for
1: this moment to ask all the questions, but I know we only have so much time and I want the listeners' questions to be asked, not just mine. <laughs> How generous of you.
2: <laughs> so Dr. Truxel, what got you into I know, I mean, I know you're you're you have a book out that's specifically about couples and their sleeping habits. But what got you into like sleep in the first place? What led you to the sleep and relationships? Like how how did this come together? Yeah, so
0: I have a book out called Sharing the Covers, Every Couple's Guide to Better Sleep. And it really does reflect the trajectory of my research, which actually started out, I'm a licensed clinical psychologist by training, but I've always done research as well as clinical work. And my research interests have always been focused on how and why it is that relationships are so critical, not only for our mental health, but also for our physical health and indeed our survival. So I've studied why it is that married people or partnered people tend to live longer, happier and healthier lives than their um, unmarried or unpartnered counterparts, or even their partnered counterparts who are in Unhappy or unsatisfying relationships. Marriage and relationships matter, but also the quality matters. But we don't entirely understand why that is. So I came to an interest in sleep really to try to understand whether sleep could be the, a possible pathway explaining why some relationships are health protective and others may actually confer health risks. And in doing so, I realized I sort of stumbled upon an area. That had been completely neglected in the world of sleep because sleep researchers tend to view sleep in these isolated environments in a laboratory setting but we all know that's not how sleep in the real world actually looks right sleep in the real world is noisy can be interrupted and for many adults it's shared with a bed partner
1: yeah i i am so fascinated about this idea even on the trajectory like i think a lot of people we've always heard that story of like oh, the friends whose parents don't even sleep in the same room kind of thing and how that's like this shameful thing about their marriage and what does that mean for them? And I know that your book speaks a lot to that and how maybe kind of undoing some of that stigma behind what does it mean to sleep in the same room or not and how important is it that you share a bed with your partner versus getting good sleep?
0: Right, well, that's a key sort of goal of my book. Uh one of which was to share the science on what we actually know about the shared nature of sleep is there actually data to support this idea that you know there's this one size fits all sleeping strategy for all couples because that's sort of society's prescription we tend to believe that there's you know only one approach to you know a couple sleeping arrangements and any couple who veers from that shared sleep strategy that there must be something wrong with their relationship. So first, Mm. I want to actually cover the science about what we know about sleeping together versus not, how it's changed over the course of history, which it has dramatically. And what we know from the science is that there is not a one-size sleeping strategy that's going to work for all couples. Another goal of the book was really to sort of flip the narrative to start allowing couples to have open and honest conversations about what's working and what's not working in the bedroom when it comes to sleep and to start figuring out strategies that are going to work for that particular couple to do what's really the most important thing when it comes to the relationship, which is prioritizing and optimizing good sleep quality for both partners. Because what science clearly shows is that a well-slept partner is a better partner. happier, healthier, better communicators, funnier, even more attractive when we get the sleep they need. So that's really how I want to start changing this conversation away from the shame and the stigma of societal prescriptions of how couples engage in this highly intimate behavior
2: that happens to occupy about one third of our lives. Yes, right. Which is crazy. I mean, we were just talking about this a few weeks because I had had I would say three or four in a row restless, like unslept nights. And I was saying I got on, the, we, it was a Monday morning. We usually record these on Monday mornings and got on. I was like, I'm feeling very irritable today. And, you know, Dr. Naomi is also a licensed clinical therapist. So we kind of like went through it. And, you know, sleep is just like you were saying, so intensely tied to mood and productivity and just general feeling like I feel like I feel more depressed when I haven't slept well. Just, and there's uh, evidence to support yeah. that we
0: know that sleep loss not only increases irritability it can also increase one's risk for clinical disorders like depression and when it comes to interacting with your partner unfortunately our partners as you all probably know often bear the brunt of our you know bad behaviors and our you know mm-hmm. bad moods and when we're sleep deprived it basically makes us so emotionally raw um, and even three nights of restless nights of sleep can do it, where you're just, you're, your emotions are sort of constantly on edge. You're, you're, you're just more vulnerable and you're more prone to snap at most likely right. your partner. So we also have shown that under compromised sleep quality conditions or when sleep deprived, people are more prone to conflict with their partner. And it's not just being prone to conflict, it's being prone to the types of behaviors in the midst of conflict that are most toxic for relationships. Uh, So kind of hostile uh, types of really critical behaviors, you're more likely to lash out at your partner, and you're less empathic, as well, when you're sleep deprived. So you can't read your partner's emotions well, and know kind of, okay, it's time to step back.
1: It's so interesting that we, you know, we talk a lot, almost all of our emails are interpersonal emails. And we go through how to be a better partner, how to communicate better. But it's almost like, first things first, let's be well slept. And then we can start to move up the rungs of like listening and communicating and being mindful. But the idea that, you know, we always talk about a lot lot of times with couples, and I have done a lot of couples work, I'm sort of like, you have to be invested in your partners, you know, being feeling fulfilled in their life, or you have to be invested in your partners wanting to have a healthy body and exercise and there's this other layer of you have to be invested in your partner being well rested as part of being a good partner. Like I have to care about not just my sleep, but your sleep or not just my well being but your well being. So I'm interested to hear and to read about how that plays out when it's sort of, I think, and we can get to the email, but in the email yeah. it's kind of like people get very touchy, of, like you don't want to sleep with me. That's offensive, yeah. I, that's yeah. a rejection. That feels mm-hmm. like instead of thinking, well, maybe prioritizing, Your sleep is going to end up bringing us closer.
0: It's a we problem. It's a we issue, and I love the way you phrase that. Is that you know sleep is truly foundational, and if we can start helping couples to view sleep collectively and how they do it is really their choice, and we can give strategies to help them find those you know best solutions for them as an individual couple. That's great, but it's this the foundation of a healthy couple. Really starts how you sleep because everything else, you know, your ability to communicate, your emotions, your ability to, you know, hear your partner and respond empathically, that's all supported by healthy sleep. So if we can address this as a sort of relationship enhancing goal rather than a, you know, I'm struggling with sleep and it's all your fault and Mm -hmm. therefore we're considering these solutions. It's really a we issue and we're going to come to it together uh, to find a solution that is going to maximize our relationship because it matters that much to me. It's an investment that's that worthy of making because I care about you so much. Like that's how I approach it with couples.
2: Totally. And I mean, to me, like I have so many friends. This is so funny because I feel like you hear the most stressful years of a marriage are when you just you first have kids right and that's because neither one of you were sleeping and you just i guess it, you think of it as coincidental in some ways but like right. you don't think of that the sleep factor of it into like those are the most stressful years of your relationship with your significant other absolutely that was one of the
0: most fascinating areas when i first started diving into you know the coupled nature of sleep was just recognizing from a relationships perspective we know that you know, times in relationships where there's a precipitous decline in marital quality, which includes after the birth of the first child, also is paired with precipitous increases in sleep deprivation and sleep problems. And yet again, the field was just not recognizing, oh, Mm -hmm. wait, maybe there's actually a causal link. And I think even just helping couples to prepare and anticipate and label, when, you know, this is not that, you know, just my partner behaving badly, because he's become a jerk, or that, you know, (laughs) I'm becoming a jerk, but, you know, I'm sleep deprived. And so can we give each other more grace by sometimes labeling, um, you know, some bad behaviors is not a permanent excuse, but it could be related to the very known sort of temporal sleep deprivation that comes when you have a Uh, When you have a baby, you know, we have a term for being, you know, hangry when you're hungry and angry. Mm -hmm. But we need, you know, slangry is when you're sleepy and angry. And sometimes labeling that. (laughs) that, you know, can give couples a little bit of distance to say, okay, you know, this is not like a dispositional problem in my partner that's
1: unsolvable but maybe one of us needs a nap
0: (laughs) or maybe we need some support.
1: (laughs) If it goes on, you know, my oldest is 11 and my youngest literally last night is still coming in. And if this goes on for a decade, then it is kind of turns into a personality type of trait. And I do think a lot of people neglect their sleep for years on end.
0: Years on end. And yeah. So, and that's why the dialogue around this, that, you know, it's not just something to accept, there's absolutely periods in a family's life and a couple's life where sleep problems are very prevalent. Um, and frankly, it's not just when they're newborns, you know, I have teenagers and, uh, you know, there's, they can keep you up at night too. Um, but there's also strategies. And actually when couples start elevating sleep, to, you know, in conversations about sleep to a sort of a priority area in their relationship instead of this neglected thing that just we sort of are, are reactive to, well, then you can start problem solving around it. You know, maybe you take turns if you have a infant waking up in the middle of the night. There's all sorts of strategies which I discuss in my book you know, across, you know, the many
2: transitions in a family's uh, history. So what is this concept of of sleep divorce that you, I know you've talked about in your TED talks and and also in your book, like, can you explain, is that a, is that a recent thing or has that always been around? Yeah.
0: So the term Mm -hmm. sleep divorce is an unfortunate recent term, Mm -hmm. you know, picked up by the media, which really just refers to, frankly, the increasingly prevalent trend of couples choosing to sleep apart uh, for a variety of reasons. And uh, the reality is across history our you know, couples sleeping arrangements have changed dramatically. You know, it used to be de rigueur in the Victorian era, for instance, for couples to sleep apart. You've seen, you know, shows like The Crown on Netflix. Uh, You see, you know, a very enduring relationship in which, you know, they have, you know, for years, the royalty have slept apart. Um, And but that has sort of changed over time with societal norms. And, basically around sort of the 1960s and the sexual revolution, we saw this major sort of societal shift where we started stigmatizing sleeping apart as being necessarily a sign of a loveless or sexless relationship. And in many ways, sort of those sort of beliefs and stigma carry forward to today, Although we're starting to see some signs that that may be changing. I try to avoid using the term sleep divorce because it's such a, you know, word with such negative connotations. Anytime you put the word divorce in the context of a relationship, that doesn't feel good. You know, it really is a stigmatizing word. And, you know, many happy couples may choose to sleep apart, again, for a variety of reasons. What we need to do is help couples find the solution that's going to work best for them and move away from these societally prescribed sort of arrangements that everyone must sleep in one sleeping arrangement or else and really instead again change the focus to how do we sleep you know better together or apart and there's lots of strategies for all different couples and it may change throughout a couple's history so that's you know there's just not a one size fits all strategy
2: show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I can't say how many times I've thought I just wish I had one more hour in this day. I'd probably do a different thing with it every day. Some days I would probably call a friend, catch up. Other days I would take a long nap. But either way, an extra hour would always really help me out. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. I personally have been to therapy for many years and it has been so, so helpful, not only in prioritizing what I want, what I want to spend my time on, how I want to live, but also helping me optimize my relationships and use that time more wisely, like use that time to create better bonds with people
1: So I, I did have another question, which I think, cause I've, I've heard this a lot, which is how do you help couples if they do decide the best thing for them is to sleep apart, to not feel disconnected or to not feel like somehow if one partner's leading the charge on like, I can't sleep with you, the other partner not to feel rejected or like, do you work with couples on, on that issue?
0: I do. And it's often, that's exactly how many couples uh, present. And Jordana, you, you mentioned this too, that like, well, the, you know, issues of ab- abandonment and stuff, there's there's so much meaning sort of laden in the marital bed, right? Or like, And, and we, we attach so much to, to this. And it's often the case when couples come in to see me, that one partner, usually because he or she is just not sleeping well at all, they are very motivated to try anything to sleep better. <laughs> and they basically want me to give them permission to, to, to try different strategies, but they're just desperate for a good night of sleep. The other partner might feel very resistant to any sort of even suggestion of sleeping apart because you know of how emotionally laden the relational or marital bed is for them. Um, And so they may be really feeling like, um, well, if we were to sleep apart, that's, you know, that's marching towards a real divorce, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And may have real issues with abandonment and rejection. So there's a lot of strategies that I work on with couples. First, it's identifying what the sleep problem is. Sometimes the partner who is so desperate to try anything may actually need insomnia treatment. And so we we may sort of first start improving um, his or her sleep and and see how much it actually has to do with the partner or not. But then we can work on other strategies as a couple. First of all, starting to have open and honest and non-threatening dialogue about, again, what's working and what's not working. And maybe even approaching different sleeping arrangements as a experiment or a trial period in that way it's much less sort of there's less permanency to it and it's actually a great way to collect data for both partners on the one hand the partner who's so desperate to try anything and they think that their sleep problems are entirely due to the other partner they may find oh if i spent like a weekend what let's say we did a trial period where on a weekend we tried separate beds or separate bedrooms the partner who's you know really not sleeping well may find, oh, well, actually, I have sleep problems even without my partner. It's not all their fault. Or maybe they find, oh, I, I, I really slept better. This is data to gather. The partner who's really resistant, by making it a trial period or sort of a short term, let's test this out, see what happens. They might get to test out those beliefs that, oh, if we start sleeping apart, you know we're never going to have sex again. We're going to lose all closeness. My par- this is a sign of my partner rejecting me. Maybe they'll find that's not the case. Maybe Mm -hmm. they'll find, oh, my partner who has been so sleep deprived and stressed now actually is happy to see me in the morning. This isn't so bad after all. It's sort of kind of moving away from this all or nothing thinking that if we try something different, we're sentencing our our relationship to, you know, separate beds forever, or it's going to necessarily mean something about our relationship. It's really trial and error, collecting data in a non-threatening way, and then coming back and talking about, well, how did we benefit from this? And and what do we potentially sacrifice? And then you work through that.
2: I love that, because it really feels like it normalizes the difference in sleep needs. Because I do think societally, It does feel like if someone doesn't want to sleep in the same bed as you, it feels like, oh, they don't they don't like you or they're like they're avoiding intimacy in some ways. Mm -hmm. And I I think I remember this even from like early dating when my husband now boyfriend at the time, you know, if, if he would like leave at the end of the night to go sleep in his bed, I would take it as like a, you know, as a rejection, you don't want to spend the night here when really it was like he's he waking up early, he's going to work. He wants to have a good night's sleep in an environment that he's like has controlled. But it's so easily, easy to take it personally, even for something like anecdotally, I'm kind of into like going to bed at the same time. I'm wondering your thoughts on that. So, <laughs> you know, sometimes my husband wants to stay up and watch, watch TV or watch a show. And I'm like, I'm tired. Let's go to bed. And he's <laughs> be like well, you can go to bed. I'll come in. I'm like, oh, no. I'm like, oh, no, we, we're going to bed. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, a, it's like
0: we got, you know, my sleep, your sleep, and our sleep. And how do mm-hmm. we put all this together? Because it's, you know, this is a biobehavioral phenomenon. And particularly when it comes to couples sleeping schedules, this is another area that I talk about in my book. And I, I, I see couples who come in to me with these challenges, you know, just because you fall in love with another human being does not necessarily mean that you're going to be perfectly in sync with regard to your sleep-wake preferences, which are about 50% biologically based, genetically determined. So some of us are extreme morning types where we wake up at the crack of dawn. Others are extreme evening types, um, the the night owls who, you know, kind of hit their peak in the late evening hours. And then some of us are in in between. But when you pair a strong morning person with an extreme evening person and that couple you know feels as you do that like but we're a couple and therefore we have to go to bed at the same time <laughs> one of them is going to suffer because as much mm-hmm. as you love that person you know if the evening person is trying to go to bed at 10 p.m. because their partner says it's my bedtime they really can't override their biology which is just not sleepy at 10 right. p.m. so what i recommend to those couples is to try to prioritize the time that's shared in bed before you fall asleep and make that quality time. That means, you know, put away your phones perhaps and actually just be with your partner. Sometimes that ritual of being together in bed before either partner goes to sleep is really the most critical time to savor as a couple. So if one's a you know morning lark and the other's an owl, they can get into bed before the lark's earlier bedtime, share some cuddle time, some intimacy, just closeness, digest the stresses of the day, be together in a quiet space. And then when it's time for the early bird to go to bed, the night owl can get out of bed, go to another room, do his or her thing and return to bed quietly when it's their more natural bedtime. Again, this idea that we have to, you know, Always be in sync with our partner's sleep-wake preferences just because we love that person is simply not a reflection of the reality, which is a lot of our sleep-wake schedules are beyond our control and are, in fact, biologically based. And it's asking too much of our partner to try to override that tendency.
1: Mike, you heard it here. (laughs) You're Right. She's <laughs> He's wrong. right. Yeah, we won't tell him. to Don't to listen to this, <laughs> listen to this yeah. episode. <laughs> I did have one other question, which I don't know the answer to. But I'm curious, have you done any research on any correlation between this type of better sleep and then quality or quantity of sex as a result of getting better sleep?
0: Oh, great question. There is uh, research out there, not my work, but others. And I I love talking about this research because, you know, there's the old adage that sex is good for sleep. And that may or may not be true, actually. It seems to be good for some, perhaps not, not others. And that might fall on gendered lines. You know, what I often hear is, you know, a female partner will say that her male partner after sex, like falls right into sleep. But, you know, if she has sex before bedtime, she's awake all night. This may resonate with some. So, It's not entirely consistent, and it may fall on gendered lines, how effective sex is for sleep. But what is quite clear from the research is that sleep is good for sex. So first of all, we know that uh, sleep is uh, intricately tied and affects our sexual and reproductive hormones. Uh, One study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, which is the preeminent medical journal found that among healthy young men, just about a week of sleep restriction uh, resulted, where they were sleeping, I think, less than five hours per night, uh, resulted in a 10% uh, reduction in their testosterone levels, which is, of course, a critical male reproductive and sexual hormone. And just to put that into context, a 10% reduction in testosterone levels is about the equivalent of aging a man hormonally by about 10 years. So a 40-year-old man Starts to look more like a 50 year old man, okay? (laughs) Uh, So, like, take that to heart. And for women, there's been studies to show that with an extra hour increase in her sleep um, across several days, there was a significant increase um, in her sexual desire and pleasure. So, you know, both from a hormonal perspective and from a pleasure perspective, uh, research does show that. Getting a good night's sleep is actually really beneficial for a, a couple's uh, sexual uh, relationship as well.
1: Wow, this is probably that fact is probably super motivating for people to be like, okay, well, we if we do this, it's going to be better. Right. A lot of people feel like it's going to be worse. That's all. You awesome. feed the baby. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you want to have sex? There may be yes. benefits
0: for us both. <laughs> Again, sometimes knowing just how critical sleep is for all aspects of our relationship it is it can be motivating and it can put partners on the same page together to say, okay, this is you know, mutually beneficial. How do we maximize sleep for both of us?
2: And it, what do you feel like is the number one tip that changes people's sleep, maybe that most people don't know about? In terms of sort of my number one sleep health strategy for
0: yes. everyone to follow if you're going to do one thing, it's actually to set a consistent wake-up time. Okay. Interestingly enough, it actually begins, a good night of sleep begins first thing when you wake up in the morning. And that's because our wake up time is really the single most important cue to set our internal biological clocks, otherwise known as our circadian rhythms. So if you lock in that regular wake up time, and better yet, pair it with some morning light exposure, you're mm-hmm. setting yourself up for sleep success by at least locking in those circadian rhythms, which govern our sleep wake patterns. And then there's lots of other important tools as well. But if you're going to start with one thing, set that consistent wake up time, and that can make a big difference um, and actually set you up to be sleepy at the right time at night.
2: Even on the weekends, right?
0: Just, That's the um, problem. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Even on the weekends. Okay. So, you know, and I, you know, I'm a human being and I, you know, have a life myself. And I realize that if you wake up at 6 a.m. during the work week, maybe you need a little bit of latitude on the weekend. So I, I, I give a little leeway, but I, I say, you know, try to keep your weekend wake up time within two hours of your weekday but. Be- Uh, wake up time. Right? Okay, so baby steps. And, you know, and if you're really struggling with sleep, you have to be a little bit more rigid. But those are sort of some parameters. So you don't go sort of, you know, too extreme and sleep in so much that then really makes particularly Sunday nights really hard to fall asleep. Well, if you've slept in a lot. So if you kind of rein it in some that's still better for your circadian rhythm. And it's more likely that you're going to adhere to that.
2: Awesome.
1: Yeah, that sounds like a great little tip. And I don't know that I want to know the answer to this, but we're a big napping family and I really love my naps. Is napping a good thing or what, what are your thoughts on
0: Napping naps? is a really hot topic right now and there's lots and lots of research coming out about it. I don't know if it's I, very I want controversial. to hear what you have to say. It's, it, yeah. I mean, here's the deal. Cultures around the world have napped and have it, you know, napping is a normal part of many cultures you know, for years and years and years throughout history, right? There are countries, you know, for which siesta culture is just, it's a part of their culture. And the the research on sort of napping, is it good or bad, really depends on sort of where sort of the research takes place. And the bottom line is, how is the nap serving you? There are good naps and there are bad naps, right? And it also depends on why are you napping? If you're in a country where napping is really culturally normative, there's really no evidence that there's anything bad about taking naps. I think in our culture where naps aren't culturally normative, we have to look to why is that person napping? Are you napping because you're chronically sleep deprived or your sleep is chronically compromised or because you have some, you know, sleep disorder or a partner, you know, thrashing about and snoring at night and keeping you awake at night. If you're using naps on a chronic basis to compensate for chronic poor sleep at night, then that's probably not so good for you because you really need to get to the root of the problem and start sleeping better at night during the primary sleep period. On the other hand, if you're somebody who just loves a nap, feels refreshed, it doesn't disturb your nocturnal sleep, and you end up after the nap, hey, you're. if you're in that camp, then have at it. The basic rule for a healthy nap is keep it short and keep it earlier in the day. So later naps are not so good because they could interfere with your nighttime quality of sleep. And two long naps can also uh, interfere with your nighttime sleep, but also they rarely end up feeling refreshing because the longer you sleep, the more likely you're to slip into the deeper stages of sleep and then wake up feeling that groggy, unrefreshed state, which is exactly what you don't want after a nap. So keep it earlier in the day and keep it short and do be mindful of the reason for the nap. If you're doing it proactively, it feels good to you and you're not doing it to compromise for the fact that you're chronically sacrificing sleep at night or that your sleep is just very compromised,
1: then I would say it's absolutely fine for you
2: what a relief for you. (laughs) You're good.
1: (laughs) Which is great because and it's interesting that you say that because sometimes I kind of feel like I have to almost make up a reason why I want to like oh it's because you know I got woken up in the middle of the night or oh it's because I didn't get enough sleep and sometimes I just I see it almost as like you know you have to like turn your phone off and back on every now and then to just like reset. Yeah. Like sometimes that's what yeah. it feels like. It's, it's
0: a Well, that's a great purpose of an app as a reset button. And again, right. as you just mentioned, isn't it interesting? I mean, you brought me on here to talk about, you know, in part like the stigma attached to couples sleeping arrangements. How interesting is it that, you know, there's so much stigma in multiple areas, including napping, you know, that we have in our society. And I think that really reflects our, our society's just Really, sort of somewhat tortured relationship with sleep. You know that we've, you know, historically undermined the importance of sleep. We've, you know, patted people on the backs for being such hard chargers that they just don't need sleep. All and now lose, with yeah. an Yeah. Now we know with an abundant amount of research that that's really a bad idea. That rather than being a sign of success and productivity and health not sleeping enough can actually, you know, diminish productivity and march you to a premature death. Um, So like sleep is important, but we do have like these, you know, the societal stigma about sleep in so many domains, whether it be how couples sleep together or whether you need sleep or what it means if you're a napper. So I think we really need to bring sleep to the fore more and, and talk about, you know, why it really matters, which is that it is the foundation for not only our individual health and well-being, but also our relationship health.
2: There is nothing better than feeling yourself, especially when your denim looks and feels good. That's why Lee is a staple in my wardrobe, because everyone is an icon in their own right, and Lee makes denim so you can own your style and feel good about it. I got a few Lee pieces that I absolutely love. They've been a wardrobe staple of mine ever since I got them. I just keep basically like switching between the two or three jeans that I got. Every time that I wash them, they get more comfortable and they get more fitted and more flattering to me. I love that they flatter every body type. They're timeless. So you can wear them at any point. I love that the jeans feel like comfortable yet flattering. I don't know how they do it. It's actually an art and they have mastered it. Lee's denim jacket is the one to reach for without fail, a classic. The rider jean jacket is the OG, what every other brand has copied for decades. Denim trends come and go, but Lee is legendary for creating denim cuts that fit your body. Their spring collection is here, so get the freshest looks and cuts before anyone else. You can find your Lee fits by visiting LEE.com. That's lee.com to shop Spring Looks Now. I think this is all so important It's something that people don't really think about or, or even talk about that often. And so I'm so glad that we got to talk about it on today's episode. I want to get into the email. But before that, I also know that for the listeners at home, you are also doing a, a contest, right? Yes. Can tell us a little bit about that. I know today is the last day to enter.
0: Yeah, oh yes.
2: Okay. Yeah, well, it's it's
0: such a pleasure to talk about this. So, as I said, I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and I've been studying couples in sleep and treating couples with sleep problems for, you know, 20 years. And to be honest with you, I'm one person and I have a relatively limited practice. Well, I now have this great opportunity um, with this partnership with Mattress Firm to give some free consultations, sleep marriage consultations to some lucky couples who are struggling with sleep and who you know want to come to me as the expert to have some uh, one-on-one sessions where we really talk through and problem solve the various issues that they may be having. And again, the types of sleeping Challenges that couples may face very dramatically. It's not just about snoring. Uh, There can be other issues as well. And you know, I'm just thrilled to be able to participate in this contest um, and to be able to work with some couples to help them navigate these sometimes rocky waters and actually find some solutions that are going to optimize their sleep quality and also their relationship health. So it's a lot of fun.
2: That's awesome. Where where do people go to enter this? This is a partnership with Mattress Firm, so correct me if I'm wrong, we'll take it out if I am. Can they win a free mattress as well as a cons- consultation? I think there was something in there. Yes, about that, yes. Right? So yes. I, there
0: is also an opportunity to win a free mattress. This is a partnership with mattress firms. So going to their website for the consultation with a sleep marriage consultant, which is me, it's going to be a lot of fun. And I'm, I'm looking forward to being able to help um, more couples as they navigate these issues, which,
2: you know, we've just neglected for too long. That's awesome. So go to the Mattress Firm website if you want to enter that contest for you and your partner. Get a sleep consultation with Dr. Troxel and a free mattress. It sounds amazing. Again, really in line with what we're talking about with just optimizing your sleep and optimizing your partner's sleep and caring about your partner's sleep. I think it's a great first step to be really committed to not just you getting good sleep, but your partner as well. And I think this email that we're about to read has a lot to do with that too. Um, do you want to read it, Dr. Naomi?
1: Sure, I'll read this. I'm cool. curious to hear what advice you give them. Hi, Dr. Naomi and Jordana. I'll jump right into a very long email. My boyfriend and I have been dating a year and we're planning to move in together later this year. I'm 35 and I've had a rough dating history before him. I had a lot of failed situationships and dated unavailable men. In therapy, I realized I had labeled myself as undateable. My current boyfriend is great and makes me feel very calm and loved and we talk about marriage. So my issue. I'm a very light sleeper and wake up to everything because I hadn't had a real long-term relationship in almost a decade before my boyfriend. I got very used to sleeping alone. My boyfriend is tall and 200 pounds and he moves around a ton in his sleep, like throws himself around. He wakes me up all night long, leaving me cranky and overtired and even sick the next day. It's become a point of tension in our relationship because I'm so frustrated. I snap at him. I've tried everything to fix it, got a king bed, got a memory foam mattress, and even put two twin mattresses pushed together on my king frame. I can still feel him belly flop at 3 a.m. vibrating the sturdy frame, and sometimes I wake him up to yell at him about it. The more I've tried to fix it and failed, the worse my sleep has gotten. I'm anxious, and when I inevitably am woken up in the middle of the night, I'm so frustrated and on edge and struggle to get back to a peaceful sleep. Besides being frustrating, the situation is bringing up all these old emotions about being undateable. I think, why can't I just be a normal girlfriend who sleeps in bed with her boyfriend? I'm a freak who's so used to being alone, I can't have a normal relationship. My inability to sleep together will ruin our relationship. I've expressed these fears to my boyfriend and he reassures me he loves me. Quote, the situation isn't annoying, but he's not annoyed at me. And quote, I may not be a good sleeper, but I'm a great partner in many other ways, but it still gnaws at me. I have so much anxiety that once we move in together, I'll never get a good night's sleep again. The obvious answer is separate bedrooms, but neither of us want that. And I know doing that will make me feel like an ultimate failure. He insists I'll get used to it when we move in together. We only spend one or two nights a week together now because of distance. I suggested two twin frames next to each other, i.e. separate beds in the same room. And he basically sighed. And I don't blame him. It sucks and I feel so much shame around it. How do I make this situation less emotionally significant for me? How do I stop myself from using it to tell myself I'm a dating failure? How do I stop my undateable fears from rising up again? Do you think there's any chance I'll get used to it? Please help. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Sleepless, not in Seattle. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow.
1: Oh,
0: it yeah. breaks my heart just a little bit. You can see how loaded this topic is. And I mean, I was just taking notes as, as you were reading it. I mean, you know, she equates a normal girlfriend versus versus a freak with mm-hmm. how well or not well she sleeps with her partner. Um, you know, it's gonna ruin our relationship. As if there's this one-to-one relationship that, you know, sleeping with someone necessarily is going to guarantee a healthy relationship. There's not a one-to-one relationship. I'm sure we all know people who sleep together regularly and are not in a perfectly happy or healthy relationship. So by the same token, we, we really need to move beyond this thinking that not sleeping together or struggling to sleep together necessarily means something negative about your relationship. It might just be how you sleep and that you're having some compatibility issues. But having compatibility issues with your partner, whether it be day or night, is not a sign of failure But rather, you know, a sign of, you know, a problem to be solved, a problem to work through with your partner, with the mindset that you are so, to use your word, Naomi, so invested in this, that it matters that we find solutions that are going to work for us. So first, you know, I think just what was so poignant about that email that I think is going to resonate with people is just like, listen to that all or nothing and extremely socially stigmatizing language. Right. Around like the most intimate of behaviors, right? You know, this is your choice. This is your sleep. It's the foundation of so much of our health and functioning and well-being. Why are we letting society make these decisions for us and make us feel bad if we
2: make a choice that doesn't follow sort of what everybody else is doing? Especially because, like, sleeping or you know, in the bedroom is the place that no one else really should be in. Like that's the most private place in your home. Step out.
0: Right. (laughs) Right. And yet we allow society and when we allow these judgments that we put on ourselves that are really societally based, they have no place in the bedroom, right? There are lots of paths to a healthy relationship. And I think if you reflect on your relationship and, you know, other sort of issues where you would let, you know, societal norms completely dictate how you and your partner behave, you know, we're a little bit more resilient in other ways, but when it comes to sleep, it's like, oh, whatever society says, like, they're right. And what I'm feeling has got to be wrong. But sort of having some sort of internal sense and working with your partner on this most in- intimate of issues is so critical. The other thing that I thought was so important um, in terms of what to work through um, in this particular couple, as she said, that um, she wants to make this less emotionally significant and I think that that's absolutely true. And I think one of the strategies to do so, as we've already discussed is really to start engaging on this you know with her partner as a we issue, a we problem and sometimes coming at it from a you know perspective of I'm just not sleeping well and you know what I'm not sleeping well. I am so irritable and I feel really bad. You know, that happened, you know, this morning when I lashed out at you. I don't think I would have done that if I had slept well. What can we do together to work on this? Because I noticed that when I'm not sleeping well, I'm not treating you the way I want to as a partner. So that's one strategy of sort of using I statements, focusing on what both partners can get out of finding a solution and not jumping to the solution. Separate beds or separate bedrooms may not be the answer for this couple. sounds like they've tried a lot. I think using some humor, I mean, as she had in, in her letter, I mean, she's got this, you know, big guy in her bed who thrashes around a lot. He probably, maybe he has some insight to that. I think being a little bit lighter about it and really focusing on, well, this is not about, this doesn't have to say something about us and how we interact as human beings and as partners, but really just, you know, when I'm not sleeping well, I can't be the partner to you that I want to be. So using those I statements, using some humor, putting them both on the same page about, you know, reflecting on, oh, how how do you, you know, how do you feel when you're not sleeping well? You know, there can be some common grounds. They know like, she's not making this up, that it doesn't feel well when you're not sleeping well. And then really timing this conversation well too right so right. avoiding having this type of conversation in the middle of the night in the midst of a sleepless yes. night when you're only likely to lash out and you know right. punch your partner or mm-hmm. elbow him to really reflect on this as with all difficult conversations among couples timing is critical and doing it at a time when you ideally both have you know slept a decent amount is a really good idea and then maybe approaching it from a can we try this and collect some data like I was talking about earlier? Like, let's put all the options on the table, um, including trying the, you know, single beds put together equals a king size bed. What would it be like if we would try that? And, you know, what are our concerns? You can even talk through the experiment as well as doing some in vivo experiments, depending on, you know, what what actual beds you have. But like, what's actually the concern behind that when he sighed? when she made that. Well, let's unpack that. What is the sigh about? Does that reflect his underlying concern that, oh my gosh, if we start sleeping apart, that's going to be like my grandparents and they never had sex and therefore we're never going to have sex. Let's unpack this and really identify these very extreme beliefs that might be sort of Creating this, you know, emotional load, and, and let's unpack it and really identify. Okay, is this based in reality, or perhaps not? Or how might we problem solve? How could we ensure if the fear is that we're going to lose intimacy, that I'm going to feel abandoned? Well, let's let, let's make sure that we're, you know, scheduling time for sex, for instance, or making sure that we have that critical time right before we fall asleep or first thing in the morning for some cuddle time. Sometimes just by opening that dialogue and identifying what's the underlying
1: fear, couples can come up with a solution. I love that because I think some, and for this listener, it turns into this idea of like clinging to this symbol of intimacy. I don't know how to say it, but like clinging to the symbol of intimacy and forsaking right. real intimacy. Exactly. You know, so you yeah. can instead of, okay, sleeping together is a symbol of intimacy, but If she leads with, I want to be intimate, I'm attracted to you, I want to make time for sex, I envision this, I envision waking up and coming into the bed with you and, you know, maybe having sex first thing before I get dressed, or these are the ways that and making it kind of like fun and interesting and exciting to try something new, maintaining intimacy instead of just this thing that's supposed to symbolize intimacy.
0: Exactly. You're right. It's maintaining the symbol of intimacy at the expense of yes. actually doing something that could enhance your intimacy. Uh, as we talked about that, you know, sleep is very, mm-hmm. so critical, you know, for, for sexual activity and sexual pleasure. And so again, maybe like, let's stack up the list of, you know, what are the benefits of us both sleeping well for our relationship and what are the costs and sort of evaluating that and how can we balance again, the costs and really Honoring and respecting, you know, his concerns. And it sounds like, you know, she has a lot of concerns, too, about what this would mean, you know, kind of moving through this idea that's, you know, sleeping apart or considering some other sleeping arrangement is necessarily a failure in the relationship. How do we unpack that and really say, you know, turn that on its head? aren't you actually striving to maximize your relationship by supporting sleep, which is the very foundation of healthy relationships and healthy well-being? So I think we really just need to, to kind of turn the conversation on its head as a pro-relationship activity yes. rather than something that is forsaking your needs for mine or forsaking the relationship for you know my frivolous need for sleep. And it's just right. not frivolous.
2: Totally agree. Yeah. It seems like, um, I think we've, we've talked to another different expert on like MDMA therapy or something. And This seems to be like an entirely ego-based problem. Because, you know, mm-hmm. if you take the ego out of it, and with the meaning behind it, it really becomes almost like a mechanical, like physical issue, as opposed to a like, mental issue.
0: It is, except <laughs> that like, sleep, that's why it's one of the things, sleep is so fascinating. It, it, there right. is sort of this mechanical issue. And yet, Sleep is intricately tied with our relationships, and it does speak to our sort of basic vulnerability as humans. And so, Mm -hmm. it's no accident that, first of all, that I find, you know, that I'm in this field in the first place, but like her words themselves speak to this just close connection between, you know, our deepest vulnerability in the context of our relationships and our deepest vulnerability in sleep. Like, they are connected and it's I think partly because sleep itself is a vulnerable state to be in. Uh, you know, you're lying down, you're semi-conscious, you're vulnerable to potential threats from the environment, at least in an evolutionary perspective. Right. And we as human beings, we derive our sense of safety and security from our social connections. So I think we're really hardwired sort of to see the social embeddedness of sleep. And so While I think the psychological need for closeness at night is very real and I think is partly hardwired, sometimes it's in conflict with sort of the mechanics Mm -hmm. Um, and the physical aspect. And and again, it's okay. And I think like giving couples permission to realize, oh, I might have this sort of psychological need or want – But it's not working with sort of the mechanics of the situation, which is I'm frankly just not sleeping well. And so like that's when you have to sort of, you know, really balance sort of like what are we getting out of this and recognizing that psychological need. How do you serve that psychological need for closeness and security, which is particularly salient at night, but also acknowledge, well, but if we're not sleeping well, that's definitely not serving the relationship
1: Totally. I mean, that leads me to the whole question of like sleeping with kids. Maybe that'll be chapter two. Oh, you're gonna have to bring me back for a Come long back on conversation for, for that one. But I'm, yes. uh, you know, obviously, the whole like vulnerability at night and safety and, but I'm not sleeping. But you know, so, yeah, maybe we'll have you back for that one. But this I mean, this whole thing is so fascinating. And just something that I personally, even as a psychologist, haven't really thought about in terms of relationship quality that much. So I'm so thankful that we got to have you on here to to do this.
2: Well, it's my absolute pleasure. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. Where can they find you if they want uh, more? Where can they find the book? Everything? Sure. Yeah. yeah. So again, thank you so much. Um, it's just been a pleasure to talk to you both. My book, again,
0: is called Sharing the Covers, Every Couple's Guide to Better Sleep. I have a website, wendytroxel.com. I'm also on Twitter, Wendy Troxel. And again, for those couples who might be struggling as you're listener was and and wrote that so beautiful letter, please consider the Mattress Firm Sleep Marriage Consultation uh, Contest. Uh, You have to go to the website and apply and some lucky couples will get a consultation with me and I would be delighted to help you with your sleep challenges.
2: Awesome. And to enter, you can go to mfrmsleepmarriagecontest.com to enter the Mattress Firm contest to get a consultation with Dr. Troxel. Thank you again for coming on. This was awesome. We'll have to have you back when we get to, you know, how to get your kids to sleep or whatever (laughs) (laughs) Naomi is having at the moment. (laughs) We can go deep on that one. (laughs) All right, let's do it. Thanks so much. And we'll be right back with some intentions. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick, but can't always afford the super high end stuff? I have a solution for you. Newly. Newly is a great value at $98 a month for any six styles, but right now you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code OVERSHARING20. Just go to NUULY.com, that's Newly with two U's, and enter the code OVERSHARING20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's n-u-l-y.com, Newly with two U's, with code OVERSHARING20. Newly subscription clothing rental, change your clothes And now it's time for a special segment brought to you by The Knot Vendor Marketplace. With the easy-to-use filters like location, ratings, aesthetic, and more, The Knot helps take the stress out of your vendor search. Visit the slash oversharing to get started today. Each week, we answer an email from a listener who is looking for help setting intentions for their big day and help them quell their pre-wedding jitters. Let's get into this week's email. Hi, Jordan and Dr. Naomi. I'm a huge fan of the show and I started out as a Up listener many years back when I had no idea what I was doing while dating. It has been great to have had the chance to evolve alongside Betches and both of these shows as I am now writing in for an intention regarding my engagement, growth. I am 29 and just got engaged a few weeks ago and my mother-in-law is already driving me crazy. For context, my mom and I have always had a difficult and complicated relationship, but the rest of my family is amazing, sane, and super close. So I try to put up with her bullshit for the greater good of the family. Talking to my mom about anything beyond the surface level almost always transports me back to being a pissed off, moody teenager with a bad attitude. This ends up upsetting me more as acting this way is not in alignment with the happy and positive person that I usually am. For this reason including my mom in the more personal aspects of my life, is often avoided. My mom is thrilled that I'm getting married and has already called me many times to monologue about venues and guest lists and wedding dresses. I told her right off the bat that we are waiting at least two years before having a wedding, but that has not stopped her. I even lightheartedly reminded her that she shouldn't get too carried away as everyone in the family jokes about how unconventional and non-traditional I am and how my wedding planning style will be no different. I find myself becoming so anxious and irritable when my mom brings up wedding plans, despite the fact that I've effortlessly and excitedly talked about wedding stuff with my friends and other family members without a problem. I'm happy that she is so excited for me and I don't want to take that away from her, but I know that this is going to become a vehicle for control in the future and it's only going to get messier and messier. What is an intention I can set for remaining positive and engaged while discussing these topics with my mother and not letting past resentments put a dark cloud of anxiety and teenage attitude over what should be a happy conversation? And how can I stop myself from spiraling when I think about how much worse it's going to get once there are more concrete plans being made? If I can't even handle her texting me about dresses, how am I going to feel when I'm actually dress shopping and she insists on coming, asserting her unwanted opinion on what I've chosen? Mommy's little betch.
1: All right, this I I can totally get this. Uh, She doesn't say much about what has gone on between her and her mom that makes this relationship difficult. So it's a little bit harder to understand what exactly she's worried about. I think just her mother's opinion like annoys her. Generally, yeah.
2: I think there was also something in there that I was getting that like maybe she just feels like her mom doesn't really. Uh, know or understand her mm-hmm. and I think that dates back to maybe this like teenage angst and she's talking about how like how the rest of her friends and family would call her like untraditional or unconventional and maybe a little bit alternative and it probably brings back this sense of maybe her teenage years when her mom maybe wanted her to act a certain this is again me sort of guessing but right. it seemed like there were some hints into something in her teenage years where she felt like her mom wanted something done her way and didn't understand her it sounds like the the classic teenage angsty trope of like you don't understand me right 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 and maybe it's overflowing into this thing where maybe she still has a sense of like her mom wants her to be a certain way and doesn't fully get her it's just what something
1: i was assuming i can see that i can see how how you would get to that and i do think there's a piece of this that sounds like that like she sort of doesn't want to hear her opinion, because it sounds like perhaps her opinion doesn't take the listener's opinion into account or or identity or that type of thing. So I can definitely see that. I guess the question for her is how do I, it sounds like what she's trying to do is chill out and be nicer to her mom and not get so triggered and worked up by what's going on. Like it's, this isn't, this doesn't sound like a boundary setting email. This sounds more like, um, I want to, like, kind of be able to relax into this. Um, Right.
2: It sounds like my mom, I'm always... My mom is always... Everything my mom says is always annoying me. How do I not become a person who's like... And I can understand this, too. It's like, how do I not be that person who's, like, yelling at their mom? Yes. And, you know, know, there's always that thing where it's like, when people see you yelling at your mom, that you always look like the crazy one. And your mom always looks like she's just being sweet and offering to do something. And only you... Only you know why, like the thing that she's doing is really annoying.
1: Yes, that's exactly, I think what this, you hit the nail on the head. This That's what's happening here. There's like some deeper issue and it might be exactly what you said. My mother doesn't see me. She doesn't know me. She doesn't get me. She, you know, we're not connecting, trying to lead me in a direction. And maybe this is part of it too. She's leading me in a direction where she wants me to go, whether it's about what type of dress she wants me to wear or what type of wedding she thinks I should have versus trying to really lead me in a direction of what's going to make me happy and what I want, which is such a beautiful thing when that can happen for a wedding. You know, when there's someone in your life that's kind of like, let's talk about what you want and how can I be supportive in getting you what you want so that you're the happiest at the end of this. That's pretty rare, but it doesn't, right. you know, which <laughs> I'm sure you'll be like that. I hope so. I really do because yeah. you kind of have to just not care that much to, to be that person where you're sort of right. like the whole point of this is that you have the best day ever. And it doesn't matter if I think your dress is, you know, too revealing. If it makes you feel good about yourself, then like, that's great. You know?
2: Yeah. You just have to take your own like the, wh- whatever, how, whatever is going on reflects on you out of the equation entirely in order to be, I think the best version of someone's mother
1: in a wedding. Yes. And interestingly enough, I think that's a problem that parents have in general is like that their children are a reflection of them. You know, like if my daughter's wedding is X, Y, Z, then that means this about me or even just not the wet, like in general. People mm-hmm. feeling like, oh, if my kids, you know, get get good, into this college, yes, yeah, then it means then, I did a good job.
2: Then I can tell everyone that my. It's about like what you can tell people, or, you know, an extension of yourself, or living vicariously
1: through your child. Yeah, sometimes happens, and I think it can, you know, again talking about you know the the symbol of intimacy versus the reality of intimacy, the symbol of a good parent versus the reality of a good parent, like. You know, I always think about the show Dance Moms or any kids that are, like, phenoms in their, like, a you know, these seven-year-olds that are doing, like, you know, doing these double Savants back. Yes. I'm sort of, like, behind every one of those, and I'll say not every single one, but behind most of those is somebody who's, like, holding the whip and, like, really yeah. severely, like controlling that child and probably somehow doing that because they're living vicariously through them yes every now and then you get someone who's just like totally naturally talented and oozing out of them like a soulful thing Mm -hmm. that is play basketball like michael jordan and they were just born that way but parents will look to that as like success means my child is you know a phenom at this thing, or they got into Harvard, or they did whatever it is, and sometimes that is more a sign of a parent who's been standing behind them with a whip the whole time, and maybe they haven't, you know, been... Not always, but I think there are some times when the symbol of success through a child isn't always truly success. So, I, we're we're speculating on what this listener's going through, but I do think that... um. Some of this might be her just reacting to a teenage association that she has that might not be serving her anymore because her mother isn't, you know, living in the house with her, controlling what she does, constantly giving her comments or feedback or whatever she was doing when she was a teenager that made her so irritable. So maybe there is a chance that she can be different and that she's not going to try to be however she was overbearing or whatever it was that she was doing before. So maybe she can be open to her mother, the potential for her mother to change and certainly be open to the potential for herself to be able to set boundaries and kind of say, all right, got to go. Right. And hang up the phone or.
2: Yeah, I think it's easier if you if you believe and you know that you can leave at any time to be pleasant. Yes. In the beginning. Yeah. Because you're like, I don't need to like set the groundwork for leaving by being a bitch. Like yes. I can I can just come into this really happy. And then maybe they won't be annoying. And if they are, I can just like exactly like you said, say, I've got to run by yeah. before you start like
1: being whiny or annoying. Right. And I think she's probably reacting to again, we I always talk about like in your body. There's something happening in her body when she hears her mother's voice on the phone that's like triggering this, you know, memory or situation that occurred earlier in her life. And if we can kind of rewire that reaction, whereas at that time she didn't have an escape and now she does, I think she'll be able to calmly kind of be like, all right, I'm just going to go into this positive. Maybe she'll give me a nice suggestion, or maybe I'll be able to say, you know what, that's not really my style. I'll send you some stuff on Pinterest that I like, that is my style. And we can go from there. Or maybe she can just try a new way of communicating with her mother and perhaps she'll be surprised and she can kind of lean into it. And if she's not surprised and the mother comes back with something that doesn't feel good for her, she can end the interaction, either A, end end the interaction at any time, or B, communicate. This makes me feel like you don't, get me this that that comment that you're not listening yes that comment that you just made makes me feel like you weren't listening when i said xyz or that you don't really know me and that might be we're speculating this but if you know that might be a part of this you know it's like the teenage girl that goes shopping with the mom and they're like oh why don't you get this and it's like did you have you ever seen me wear something like that ever like are you, are you looking, are you watching? Like, do you see me at all? Or you just want me to be a mini version of you? Right. I totally agree. And do you, so do you have an intention of something that she could say or she
2: could say to herself before maybe talking to her mom about the wedding
1: in particular? Sure. So um, I wrote, I intend to allow space for change and trust my ability to set boundaries. So open up. See if she could be different. See if maybe she'll do something. And the change could be in your mom or the change could be in the way you communicate with your mom. Like we just said. That comment makes me feel like you weren't listening. And that's change. So I intend to allow space for change and trust my ability to set boundaries. And if that change doesn't happen and it feels like something offensive or something that feels like she's not being helpful or she's being critical, then set the boundary. I gotta go. Hang up you know, and and be done with it because it is different when you were younger and you couldn't really do that. And I think the way to do that is by like taking that pause and taking that breath and realizing it within that breath I am not my teenage self anymore. Like that. Yeah. You know, like her just realizing that like she can she is more resilient now or she can be more resilient now to her mother's aggravations than she was when she was a teenager. Because it does sound like a lot of this is coming from, you know, maybe some older stuff where she was like stuck in this thing that she couldn't get out of. And now it just is sort of, you know, an annoyance, but hopefully calming her body in that moment can help her be like, okay, this is an annoyance, like traffic is an annoyance. This is an annoyance, like Rain, when you wanted to go for a walk, is an annoyance. Like right. Changing it from this is like this childhood, deep, intense, like reminding me of something else annoyance. And
2: if you want, you can listen to our calm the fuck down meditations. We have meditations for dealing with a difficult family member. Yes. If you're about to see or speak to a difficult family
1: member, you can listen to that one. It'll be a whole five minute reset before you get into it. Totally. And there's a chance that maybe if she injects some calmness and positivity, and I see this with like mother-daughter relationships a lot where it's like, there's like this just general, you know, go-to of being annoyed and irritable. And then that doesn't bring out the best in the mother either. If the daughter is like just heading into every interaction with like ready to battle and be annoyed. So maybe if you soften maybe she'll soften or she'll change a little bit. But being open to that, I think is important. I agree. Fake it till you make it. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) I agree. That works sometimes.
2: Another great way to alleviate your pre-wedding stress is to check out the Knot Vendor Marketplace. Thanks again to our sponsor, the Knot Vendor Marketplace. When searching for that special someone to bring your wedding vision to life, it helps to have the inside scoop. And the Knot's got it. Maybe you want an ice cream cake to commemorate your first date at a Sunday shop or to hire a marching band as a nod to your first kiss at band camp. Whatever feels authentically you. Find it on The Knot Vendor Marketplace. Thousands of couples who know what it's like to be in your shoes have left reviews and ratings helping you connect with vendors you can trust. All you have to do is visit the slash oversharing to find top rated vendors near you. Okay. Let's do some triggers. You ready?
1: I am ready. Do you want to do the first one? Yeah, I'll read the first one. Hi, Jordana and Dr. Naomi. I have a triggered scenario for you. This summer, my boyfriend of two years whom I live with will be attending two weddings with me as my guest. I asked him if he could pay for half the wedding gifts as I had been complaining about how expensive it is to attend weddings these days and hoped he could share this cost with me as he'll also be enjoying the weddings. He told me that a $300 gift per couple was outrageous and questioned why he is responsible for funding their weddings, stating that it's, quote, their choice to choose to have an expensive wedding and doesn't understand how wedding culture has become a societal norm. He ultimately didn't say that he wouldn't help at all, but seemed to suggest he didn't want to pay more than $50 per wedding, as that's what he feels the meal should cost. Here's why I'm triggered. My boyfriend is in no way hurting for money. We recently signed a legal agreement, in fact, to protect against his nearly $1 million in assets as I will soon be going on the mortgage of his existing house. Although I have a good paying job, I have very minimal savings and I'm just starting out on my savings and investments journey. How triggered can I be that he just can't pay half the cost of the gifts? Thanks. This is an interesting one. I almost feel like
2: this is a betch assist. But- I mean, here's the thing. I do think they're her friends. To me, it's if they had just started dating, I think she should pay for the whole wedding gift. Mm-hmm. It seems like they're in a serious relationship as she's going on his mortgage. Yes. So to me, that changes the idea of like how much they should be splitting. And then it creates more of an issue of like, what are your money values? Yes. Right. Right. And now it's more about that. If it was the beginning of the relationship, I think it's about like the ethics of who should pay. Like she should, if you're inviting someone as a guest to a wedding that, you know, I think you should give the gift. Like if if a man I just started dating, invited me to a wedding. And then asked you to pay for the gift. Yeah. Right. I wouldn't be like super down to pay half of the gift. Right. But it seems like they're in a serious committed relationship. And so the question is more about like the amount that he's willing to pay and his cheapness. Right.
1: Well, I I agree with you. I also think there is, he's using this opportunity to like buck the trend and express his displeasure with the general wedding culture. So I think even bringing That's also a good point. Yeah, bringing up this thing of like, okay, maybe she could agree with him and say, I agree with you. I think it's crazy. You know, like the meal really should, shouldn't cost more than $50 a plate or whatever it is. And, and yes, the wedding culture, if she does feel this way has gotten a little bit out of hand. However, we are not going to change all of that by the amount of the gift that we give. In fact, it might, you know, make me feel kind of embarrassed the next time I see this couple, or it might, I might feel badly because, you know, you know, whatever, whatever her reasoning, I think this might be a a conversation where you can dig a little deeper and kind of be like, I get that you, you know, maybe this is him setting the tone somehow for like their wedding and what his expectations are for like how much they're going to get involved in the wedding culture and that type of thing. So I, I do think that this is probably significant of some type of a deeper thing. Mm-hmm. The the general triggered of like how triggered that he's only willing to pay the $50, if everything else is exactly the same and he's generous and she feels like most other financial things are fine and he's just taking a stand on this one issue because he, for whatever reason, feels strongly about it, then I feel like, all right, just suck it up and pay the extra money because you would have had to do it anyway. I
2: agree. But there's, I think it's very unlikely that that's the case. Right. Right. <laughs> but I would give it a four
1: if that was the case. If this was like a Random thing that he was just like I happen to hate this whole idea that we have to pay three hundred dollars to attend a wedding Right,
2: but the way she even describes the amount of money he has By saying like he has over a million dollars in assets He's having me sign a thing to protect his assets from me. Yes For when we sign this mortgage to me means there's a lot more conversations to be had about the way that money is shared as a couple the way that you look at your finances as joint versus separate. Yes. And that's a, that's, you know, I, I understand why she's writing in as the trigger for this thing. Cause it's so hard to, to address that head on. It feels right. so, it feels like the last thing you want to talk about with someone you're dating. Cause it's so unsexy, but if, if they are, if she is going on a mortgage with him, I think that this is probably, she should, she could use this as a segue into a conversation about, How they see money and how they see sharing things. And I I would look into that for her.
1: Totally. And I, you know, I'm not that knowledgeable about this, but it is sort of interesting given what you're saying that she's going on the, she says she's going on the mortgage. She doesn't say she's going on the house, which is interesting. It's like she's going on the portion where you have to pay for the house, but not the actual house. I don't know if that was just omitted or what the deal is with that, but I definitely think that you're right. This probably begs a conversation, one, about weddings, wedding culture, that whole, why he feels so strongly about that particular issue, and two, what are we doing with finances going forward? Is it like, mine is mine, yours is yours, and if that's how it is, then she's got to kind of, if she's agreeing to that, then yeah, she's mm-hmm. paying for the gift.
2: Yeah. I th- I'm sorry, dear writer, but <laughs> your problems are a lot bigger than this triggered, I think.
1: Yeah, it just at least worth a, a serious conversation because I do think if he's just protecting everything and sort of like, and that's okay if that's how if they agree to that, right? But I definitely think that if that's what it's going to be, then yeah, you you've got to take these things on your own, despite how much money he has. So, right, I, all these little things kind of pop up for a reason. I that being said, if he has way more money than her and they're going to the wedding together and she asked him for help and he's not helping her I could see that feeling triggering so I don't know maybe I'd give this like a right five four okay that's fair I give it a yeah I
2: give it a I give it a four I think I agree if like he's make it's annoying that he's making it about like society I hate when people do that it's like just say that you're like you don't feel like paying this much money. Right. i could almost respect it. More.
1: <laughs> don't make it about like the principle of the matter. Right. Right. Well, <laughs> I'm curious if it really is or not, if he's generous in general. I don't think she really said that, although he.
2: Something tells me. Like, yeah. Probably not. <laughs> yeah. Good luck with that. Yeah. Let's do another one. Hi, ladies. I wanted to share a triggered scenario with you and see what you think. My boyfriend and I went on a weekend trip with my friend and her boyfriend. We had a campfire in the backyard of our Airbnb one evening. My friend went inside, came back out and said, who left poop stains in the toilet while laughing? (laughs) I'm sure we all knew I was the one who went inside before her and both guys said it wasn't them. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't say anything and we all kind of laughed it off. So, yes, it was me. Maybe I'm a disgusting for not hunting down something to clean it up or being worried about it, but I didn't expect anyone to pay that much attention. I never said anything to my friend, but that call out didn't feel good. Sincerely dropping logs at the fire. (laughs) (laughs) This is a nice lighthearted one to uh, end the episode.
1: This is funny. In my house, I always come out and I say the duty fairy came. (laughs) I mean, not naming names. I have small children, but, um, I feel
2: like for kids, it's less embar. It's, yes. le- it's almost like funny for kids. But I think if you said that like yeah, and, in front of uh, Jeff
1: and like four guests, yes, I think like. <laughs> totally. And it's like kind of a romantic night of two couples are on the fire. It's right. not like, you know, <laughs> I could totally see that's kind of she feels like it's ruining the vibe, you know, like they're having like a fun, sexy, like campfire night. And it's just like, oh, yeah, yeah, that is embarrassing. <laughs> what, what do you give this?
2: I think I'd give it like a six and a half, six point five.
1: 6.5. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm married for, you know, almost 15 years and I'd still probably be embarrassed by this comment.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's just not. In front of think, another couple. If, right. if they were alone together. It would be fun. It, maybe she thought it was one of the guys. Right. In which case it's almost less embarrassing, I think, if it's. Right. Your, or if she thought it was her own husband right? or something.
1: Yeah. I guess we could give her the benefit of the doubt and say maybe that's what she thought. But yeah, I would have been embarrassed. Would you Would you call that out if you were on like no a whole strip? No <laughs> way. No <laughs> way. That's just not necessary. I mean, with my kids in my own house and like the privacy of our own house, it's funny. Right. But like with another To couple, a friend. Yeah. yeah. I would agree. I think just if we call triggering like that, that sensory thing that comes over you, where you're like, "Oh my god, I just got like a chest pang" as I'm sitting here and everyone's like looking at me, and I know that it's me, and I have to kind of like, now do I fess up? Like, right, do I lie? and she was just kind of, sounds like she kind of froze, yes. and just didn't say anything, which is probably what I would do too. Totally. Like, do, are we gonna just stare at each other till someone figures this right. out, or are we gonna move on? I mean, um, what's she gonna say? Like, not me. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds worse. Right. This is funny, but yeah, I I would have I definitely feel like it's triggering. I would agree. I like your score. It's like seven's extremely triggering and I don't think yeah. it's like to that point because it's amongst friends and it's like It's embarrassing though. A, yeah. A poo. But five feels like too low. So I'll go with six.
2: All right. We'll keep it at a six though. <laughs> we'll get rid of the half point.
1: <gasps> this was fun. This was, good episode today. This was fun. I can't wait for the next one. That's our time. Great work today.
0: Oversharing is produced by Sean Kilby, Jorge Morales-Picot, and Rebecca Salz McCann. Editing by Basilio Perez. Guest booking by Ali Friedlander. Send your advice emails to oversharing at betches.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-363-6294. Betches.